0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by BentoBox, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using BentoBox today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef.
2: Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Jancis Robinson. We'll talk to Jancis about a very busy life in wine. I'm your host, Sam Benrubi. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Jancis Robinson shies away from being called a wine critic but is truly one of the most respected wine writers in the world. She is an award-winning journalist and author, penning or co-penning the World Atlas of Wine, 8th edition, Wine Grapes, the Oxford Companion to Wine, and many others. She writes a weekly column for the Financial Times and knocks out a ton of daily content on our online site, JancisRobinson.com. Jancis resides in London, England, with her husband, Nick Lander, the longtime food critic for the Financial Times, and surrounds herself with her three children and a slew of grandkids. And oh, did I mention she has been a master of wine for over 45 years, helps the Queen with her wine selections, and also makes some amazing wine glasses. Welcome, Back to the great nation, Jansis.
3: Well, what a nice intro. And and there were no mistakes in it, which is very rare. <laughs> I got
2: nervous for a second because I'm like, was it three kids or four kids? But you it's correct. Three me anyway. and yeah, five, yeah, no, I knew it. Trust five me. Grandkids I'm very,
3: and a cockapoo.
2: That's that a whole slew of grandkids, as I said. Um we're talking to Jansis remotely via our app Zencaster. Jansis, where are you right now?
3: I'm Where I spend most of my time, sitting at my desk,
2: in Ah, London. Okay, okay. Um, I just want to remind people that I had the pleasure to talk to you and Hugh Johnson in New York City. I think it was right before um, COVID um, for the eighth edition of the World Atlas of Wine. Um, So that's the last time I saw you, and the world pretty much changed since then. So it's great to talk to you, you know, in different times. Um, I have a whole bunch of things that, you know, I really want to talk to you about, pick your brain about, get your take on it. Um, But can we talk about chancesrobinson.com first?
3: Mm, With pleasure. It's my fourth child.
2: Well, I I was going to say, is it fair to say that chancesrobinson.com is the main artery of the heart of what you're doing right now in wine?
3: Very much so. I mean, it just eats up my my day, and um, when I go to tastings, which in pre- and Properly post-COVID times, there are masses of in, in London all the time. Uh, I'm I'm chiefly tasting to, to feed the monster that is genesisrobinson.com. You know, I didn't I didn't
2: have it on the questions, but you know, part of the site is there's such an extensive section of tastings. Let's talk about tastings for a second. I mean, how much wine are you tasting? you know, daily, weekly, monthly, Mm. annually. I mean, we just talked offline that you're going to be traveling. Um, You know, tell me, just tell me a little about your tasting, you know, regimen. Do you sit down with hundreds of bottles? Do you spread it out? (laughs) I mean, what do you do?
3: Well, like most things, COVID made everything change. But normally, shall we talk normally first? Okay. Um, Because Britain until recently didn't, wasn't really a wine producer and it was full of wine traders. London is a great place to taste wine. The the world's wine producers come here and yes. show their wares. We've got lots of importers who want to show what they've got to sell. So it actually would be technically possible to be a, a pretty productive wine writer based in. Britain preferably within easy reach of London uh, and never leave the country I mean it would be very sad because you wouldn't actually know what a vine (laughs) looked like or or um, you know go to wine regions but we do have the most amazing opportunities to taste here and I'm talking the full gamut from low to high from all over the world um so Yeah, I would spend quite a bit of time normally attending the those sort of tastings, the ones I thought were going to yield interesting taste, interesting insights and tasting notes that would interest my readers. Uh, But of course, that's not enough, and I really like to travel. In fact, my very first job was in travel, and so normally, quote unquote, I would try to visit wine regions throughout the year, too. Although, I mean, we're probably going off on a tangent here, but I, I have to say that... Not incre- yet. <laughs> no, I probably am. But increasingly, I'm getting feeling guilty about long-haul flights, and I'm definitely feeling cross that budget flights are so much cheaper than trains when they're much worse for the planet. But there's my little tangent. Um, anyway, that, yeah, so I mean, it that- would be travelling tasting, and then mainly writing. And thank goodness I actually enjoy writing. But once COVID came and all those tastings suddenly ground to a halt, instead of me going to the wine, the wine very obligingly came to me. And um, I now live in a, a what we call a block of flats. I suppose you call it an apartment block. And um, Right you know, quite high up <laughs> and, uh, God, thank goodness they've got a trolley at the reception. Um, you know, some, I mean, there was literally, there was twice now a, a truck has come with literally a pallet of wine on it. Wow. For me to taste. Um, <laughs> and I mean, in some ways there were advantages, like if you're at a great big busy trade tasting you're fighting your way to each bottle you're fighting your way to the spittoon um you can't really see the wine grow in the glass you certainly can't try it with food you can't see how it's going to taste the next day so it did add a new dimension to tasting It gave me perhaps some some more insight in some ways but uh you couldn't talk to every producer I mean every producer tried to have a zoom with you right um, which you know occasionally took up an awful lot of time for perhaps you know not yielding that much but you know that's you sort of get to, to know which ones are going to be interesting and the which ones personal
2: contact for
3: sure yeah yeah and yeah. no no I tell you what I missed. I love it when you walk into a winery at harvest time, and there's that smell—smell there's that smell mm. of grapes—and and, and mm-hmm. well, I call it the smell, the smell of carbon dioxide. But I'm told carbon dioxide doesn't have a smell. Anyway, the smell of fermentation. Put it right. that way. Very, um, very,
2: very distinct.
3: Yeah, yeah, and fun, and um, yeah, and all sorts of things. Fortunately, talking of smell, I I, I wasn't affected by that horrid variant of that makes you lose your sense of smell. I think all of us wine professionals were absolutely terrified that uh, we we weren't so scared about any other symptom, but losing your sense of, of taste and smell would, would have been absolutely awful.
2: In this profession of all. Um, on yeah. the website... Just tell me something about the website. I mean, you know, when you started, you had your goal, sure, and your mission.
3: sure. Well, um, I'm, I'm very we're talking proud 21
2: of it. years later, right? Yes. You, you know, so I'm just curious. Not so much wine, because we're going to talk about wine for the mm. rest of the show. But sort of some of the evolutions, you know, on the website. You know, I mm. would guess personnel. You know, all those kind. You know, yeah. where it is today that you know I'm sure you're so proud of, and, I am. and that's different than when you started.
3: It started in a very small way. Uh, It was the year 2000 when the internet was exploding and everybody um, wanted to make their fortune on the internet, but most of them had no content. And I had content coming out of my ears. I had stacks of tasting notes that were just sitting on the floor of my study. And so I had a sort of steady stream of wannabe internet moguls coming to my house to sort of want to go into business with me and I chose somebody and asked the publishers of my forthcoming book to mention com on the book jacket and then discovered that the somebody wasn't quite what I thought um, huh. so didn't go into business with him but Janice's Robinson.com had to exist because it was being publicized on a a book jacket. So I started in a very minor way with um, literally a guy who just helped us buy our new computer. And I found that I loved it. I loved the immediacy of it. Um, I suppose I'm a bit of a control freak. So I loved the way I could publish what I wanted. I didn't have to wait for an editor. Didn't have to wait for it to be printed, all that kind of thing. And um, I loved the fact that all these tasting notes I was accumulating had found a home, you know, because previously there's a limit to how how much material you can get into a Financial Times column, for instance. So right. it, it appealed to my waste not, want not um, ethic. And so I spent so much time on it in the first year that I thought this is ridiculous. I mean, I have got to get Too much some- time? Probably.
2: <laughs> was and anyone else, did Did you notice anyone else around online doing any of this or you were just distracted um, and didn't realize?
3: I think I think um, the wine advocate, Robert Parker's Wine Advocate, started at more, yes. online more or less the same time. Yeah, you're um, right. There were maybe, I think I was about the third person in Britain to go to have a, a, a wine website. One was Wine Pages, one was Wine Anorak. But I was spending so much time on it, and I didn't want to take ads or sponsorship. So I decided I would try out a subscription-only model. So after a year, my computer advisor and I devised a way of a sort of payment method and um, put it online by mistake for half an hour a bit too early and and in the first half hour we got two memberships one from britain and one from brazil so we thought wow. mm, maybe maybe this has legs you know and uh, so it has proved we've got members now in well over 80 countries and i i love the feedback the fact that you you know you have members on the forum and commenting on what right. you've written and often giving me You know, really good tips and things like that, and obviously sharing them with the other members. But it's there's quite a lot that's free. Um, And over the years, it's so I was all by myself for the first five years. Then um, fellow Master of Wine Julia Harding, who come top in the Master of Wine exams, sort of again literally turned up on my doorstep, said, "I want to work for you," and I said, "Oh, I'm sorry, I'm such a control freak. I can't imagine it having anybody work for me." Uh, and then, oh, that's right. And then she came top in the Master of Wine exams and said, I do still want to work for you. So I said, oh, all right then. <laughs> and now we have a writing team of about 15, I think, and quite a few wow. backroom people. Um, and it obviously it's grown. Um, and it is my major activity. And we post uh, usually two new articles a day, um, six days a week. And about a third of them are free. Um, you know, the tasting right. notes are for members. But um, there's right. quite a lot there that's free. And uh, it's, you know, it's lovely to see it having, having grown. But um, I did think, because I'm quite an age, um, I decided that I really had to look after the long-term future of it. And also I was frustrated because I was so busy writing and tasting And I'm absolutely hopeless at, what's the modern word for marketing? You know what I mean? Selling, kind of, you know, publicizing it and all that kind of thing. Yeah,
2: I mean, PR, I mean, it's evolved into many different things.
3: Uh, Yeah, hopeless at that. I'm just too busy writing, (laughs) tasting and traveling. Also, our tech capabilities were pretty limited being, you know, just a sort of one one little outfit. Um, so I decided to look for a buyer who could really develop it, and, um, and particularly on the tech side. And so end of August last year, I found, uh, I, and I also wanted to develop it particularly in the US, because it's, you know, it's easy for, for me, for people in Britain to know about me. But um, I thought it would be a good idea to have an american backer so sold to this very dynamic rapidly growing company called recurrent ventures who have about another 15 16 17 other websites including actually wow. sever is probably the, right. the closest very one. respected you know, the,
2: food magazine that's right oh. yeah
3: yeah uh, and it's been a very good journey uh, and it's great they're they're really supporting us and um we are growing and that's exactly what so I wanted.
2: So wait, so less than a year later, because you said last August, mm-hmm. less than a year later, you took your baby and kind of shared it with someone else. As of today, and I don't think you implied anything else, you're happy with the direction and the partnership.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's All good. the things you, know, things, you you know, tech support.
2: Can't growth where you need it. That's great. So, you know, things will be bigger, better, you
3: know, and we'll live on. Yeah, I'm glad to hear
2: that. Um, I want to talk to you about some important issues and changes in wine that you so skillfully cover, you know, every day. And as you said, you know, you're churning content out. Um, A couple of things that have caught my eye and my palate, I'm, I mean, I've gladly seen a shift in wine styles and the most obvious is, and I, I, you know, being in America, I cut my teeth on Napa and Napa cult wines, but the shift from bigger wines to fresher producer driven wines. Um, I'm just curious, you know, what is, brought the change, and why about now? You know, not exactly today or yesterday, but in the past few years. Did people just get sick of it or it's, introducing? It's really
3: interesting, isn't it? And and it's so yeah. marked pretty much all around the world, even actually in Napa Cabernets, I would say. Um, I think some of the reason was that there, there was a period when the wine producers of the world were making wine get high scores and perceived that big, bold was a way to get a high score. And I suppose those wines naturally tended to stand out in great big comparative tastings. But then I think the producers of the world realised that they, they weren't the sort of wines that they actually enjoyed drinking and didn't go that well with food. Mm. I think particularly high alcohol, pretty oaky Uh, wines you know can especially reds can really dominate food or just clash with food I mean it's quite interesting isn't it that if you are ever at a sort of multi-course meal with wine pairings I don't know what your experience is like but mine is that say it's one of those sort of marathon meals which I actually get a bit exhausted at that say goes on for let's say 14 courses. you can get to about course number ten before you've seen a red wine when a knowledgeable sommelier is choosing a good match for you. You know, right. I, I am a big believer that white wines are actually more versatile with food. Um, I, so I think,
2: including I think, champagne.
3: Oh yeah. Or sp- yes. or
2: sparkling. You yeah. know, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. Um, so I, I think a lot of the lightening up has come from producers i'm not quite sure that consumers said please 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 give us lighter fresher wine although i think a lot of consumers certainly a lot of the my readers say please 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 give me less alcoholic wine because we all love the taste of wine but we don't and we probably want to drink quite a quantity of it without the ill effects And, you know, if you've got a bottle that's 15%, you've really got to watch the quantity that you drink. Whereas if if a, a, a bottle is 12%, that makes a massive, massive difference.
2: Yeah, I mean, which is, I mean, there's a huge movement towards lower alcohol wines, you know, which we could talk about. But when you said it was maybe more the producer than the consumer, I mean, do these guys just have the realization? They wake up and say, "Enough of making this cough medicine. <laughs> you know, I have to, I have to make a more food friendly." I, I mean, what? When you point to the producer, I mean, what do you think drove them to, or, or you know, some of them? Mm. To well, as I down. say,
3: I think it, it was their own personal taste that came into play there. And they were finding fresher wines more palatable and more appetizing because I've always And said, how important
2: wine is to food. Yeah, yeah, And those were not as compatible, right?
3: That's right. And right. Uh, and I have always said the first duty of a wine is to refresh, not to kind of punch you between the eyes, but, but actually give you refreshment. Um I, can, I, I think in your country, maybe quite – there were two strong allied forces uh, that encouraged this trend. There was the movement um, um, was in pursuit of balance. Do you remember that? Yes, in,
2: the Pinot Noir.
3: Yeah. The, uh, so it was pretty Jasmine much Jasmine Hirsch
2: led. and Raj Parr were very right. much involved in That's it. That's right. Yes.
3: And they really didn't want high alcohol wines and put on – Tasting events that showed off lower alcohol, fresher wines. And also, um, John Bonnet, the wine writer, he wrote San a Francisco
2: book. Chronicle, right?
3: He I think he was he was, yes. Left he some left some time yeah. ago. Yeah. But he wrote a book called The New California that very much celebrated newer, fresher styles. Yeah. And then it's been very evident in Australia and the Australians have these wine shows, you know, where all the important wine producers get together and judge each other's wines. And because they all get together um, maybe once or twice a year, there just needs to be one little fashion and it ripples through the whole crowd. So, you know, you can you can change the juggernaut that is Australian wine in less than a year by because of the way they socialize at, at the wine shows. I don't know, and I do know that in South Africa, for instance, the, the this new wave, let us call it that, is very prevalent. And I'm not sure what the, um, the drivers were for that.
2: Right. Well, maybe just they know what, tastes good, Mm -hmm. what goes well with, you know, maybe sort of instinctive, I you know, I don't know, but I guess, you know, it'll unravel a little. Um, You know, that leads me to another point, which is also exciting to me, because a lot of people I know in the business, a lot of friends, Mm -hmm. there's been this incredible shift of planting from the, you know, normal, typical varietals, maybe European varietals, to some you know, exciting type stuff. You know, guys in Napa are doing all these Italian white varietals and blending these terrific grapes. And then you just see it, you know, all over. I mean, I did a panel at Raw Wine yesterday for Croatian wines, and it's just crazy, the grapes there, and they're planting Syrah, um, which is interesting. But um, do you see that? everywhere you know where people are moving towards some newer varietals
3: very much so all over the world um i think it's a movement that mirrors perhaps the um the trend towards heritage tomato varieties and apple Airroom, varieties right? and things like that um we all we want indigenous now um i mean I can remember um, my BBC Two series. We filmed all around the world. And the last shot was in 1995. I was standing in the Eraseris vineyard in Chile. And I finished off the whole series. It was a 10-parter saying, I have seen the future of wine. And it is Cabernet and Chardonnay. Because everyone at that stage was ripping out their local grape varieties and planting just a tiny handful of international ones because at that stage the wine producers of the world were all going in the same direction they all wanted to make copies of top french red bordeaux and and white burgundy hence those two varieties and then again i suspect it was the producers who got bored with making, you know, such a a, a narrow range of wines. But gosh, the movement this century has really been marked. And in fact, in 19, in 2012, with Julia Harding and a grape geneticist, Dr. José Vuillemoz, we brought out a book called Wine Grapes, in which we wanted to profile every single grape variety that was making a wine in commercial production. And we ended up with 1,368 different varieties. That's how rapidly things changed. And all over the world, people were resurrecting old varieties and, um, and celebrating what was local rather than trying to copy France. And... Honestly, I think we do talk about, we would love to do a second edition at some point, and I'm sure. Are
2: there that many more grapes to add on plus absolutely. updating?
3: Yeah, wow. you bet. I Because
2: mean, the book is, you know. <laughs>
3: it's massive. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, I mean, is there such a word as it'll be more massiver?
3: <laughs> it will be massiver, yep. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe it's got to be purely digital. I don't know um Both. but it, i think there would definitely be 1500 and possibly more particularly in italy they're just reviving different grape varieties all over the place but not just italy you know greece portugal right. spain yeah
2: I, I mean new regions in portugal like alentejo you know that people don't yeah. think of there's all that going on yeah um the the other thing that you know kind of leads into this—I mean, you said the word indigenous, which is nice because I think you're right about it being producer-driven. It's like, why shouldn't I grow grapes that historically grew here, or make sense growing here, or you know, match the and that's presumably
3: comfortable here, well adapted yeah. here, yeah.
2: Yeah, and that kind of leads into, you know, something that's important to me and to you, which is, you know, sustainability. Mm. Um, If you're just planting European varietals, you're probably treating them because you're trying to knock them out. Um, But, you know, you talked about sustainability and it plays into the farming thing because you said sustainability isn't just farming organically or biodynamically you know which is pretty damn good Mm. um but you you know call for more of a overall holistic approach and i think that points to a lot of things you know like bottle size Mm. you you know and other things i I think preserving the earth you know and, and and taking care of it is important but you know talk to me about you know that holistic overall approach
3: i'd love to um I've got so many facets to it. Um, Staying in the vineyard for a second, last night I went to the launch here in London of uh, a new non-profit called the Regenerative Viticulture Foundation, Ah. uh, which is a kind of step further on than sustainable, because sustainable is just going to leave us where we are now, which is not in a great place, actually, when you look at the health of soils and the lack of biodiversity and the pressure on water and you know not to mention carbon emissions and what's happening to the climate um and the idea behind regenerative viticulture is that you actually make it better rather than sustain it and in Mm. particular you work away at the health of the soil because that's really where everything happens and you need healthy soil and the microbes in it and Mulch on the top to keep the water in it, and all that kind of thing. One of the speakers actually was um, a very well-known Oregon wine farmer. We should really call her that, Mimi Castile, who grew up on Bethel Heights. I don't have you spoken to her.
2: I have not, but I plan to. We've yeah, she'd be a
3: a great interviewee. Yeah, um, and so that's one aspect. All sorts of things have to happen in the vineyard. Um. Another, so just
2: don't take care of it; make it better. Exactly. You know, which exactly. is really the you know the highest and current form of
3: regenerative and, uh, and right build now, which it is great for the future. Right. Yeah. Um, but then there are there are people you need to you know wine producers need to look after their laborers, their workers. You know, mm. in, there's finance. Make sure you're making enough money to survive and prosper, which may well involve us. Consumers paying a bit more because I did not you know, nobody would pretend that that um, farm workers are paid particularly well or that there is a a, a surfeit of them. You know, I think we're going to have to. Yes, there'll be some mechanisation, but I think we're going we're going to have to look more more carefully at the whole economics of of wine production. Um, yes. Then there is my. Um, not being a, a wine producer or a vine grower, I sort of have to look at what I can influence and since I, you probably know i 'm sure that that wine the wine the biggest carbon footprint of wine is not actually in the vineyard or cellar it 's all to do it- with glass bottles and how the transport and production of them and that that 's the biggest carbon emitter. And if we can use lighter bottles, which we can, which bottle manufacturers show are perfectly um, strong enough and do the biz, um, we will be helping wine's carbon footprint. Immensely, and but
2: what's the what's the pushback? I mean, you know, is, is it just history and the aesthetics that the presentation of our wine, this wine, is in this massive, masculine, chunky bottle? I mean, it doesn't it doesn't have any effect on anything, right?
3: Absolutely none. And I think it's just people haven't thought about it or, or realized. Right. You know, it's it's been actually quite recent that anyone's. Looked at the whole life cycle of wine and and analyzed, realized how chances bad.
2: bottled water has done it. You know they make thinner plastic, smaller yeah. caps. You know, not that that's a great thing, but at least it's getting better. Do you feel that you know changes upon us, or we're not there yet as far at, as people? At
3: long last, I mean, there are pockets of places and people that haven't um, realized. Um, what this is all about and still think that um, it's a it's a really clever marketing ploy yeah. but I think more and more consumers are understanding um, that heavy glass bottles are completely unnecessary they're also really hard work for people who have to lift them um, and <laughs> I think the message is getting through I have been campaigning against them since 2006 so I wouldn't say it's been an overnight Success, but right. I'm really seeing more and more people aware of the issues now. And actually, um, you know, yes, you probably need a glass bottle for a wine you're going to age for ten years because it's a neutral um, material. But you don't need a glass bottle for kind of everyday supermarket wine. It because the, the virtue of glass is over time. And, and you, you know, most wine in the, that's sold in the whole world is drunk within days, if not hours of purchase. And it could just as well come out of a can. You've, you've got so a very vibrant canned wine market, haven't you?
2: It's very much growing. There's also yeah. boxed wines. I mean, yeah. is that a fair presentation? Bouches.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I uh, mean,
2: you're talking like three liters in one box. So that's mm-hmm. three less bottles. Yeah. Um,
3: Four less bottles, actually. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's definitely uh, an area to go. Hopefully, bigger wineries that do a lot of um, production may move to those types of vessels. And recycling,
3: of course. You know, um, I think the U.S. has a pretty dismal recycling rate, unfortunately. And Britain's a bit better, but it's not nearly as good as some continental European countries. Um, So I, you know, you can either have returnable bottles or really get to work on the how easy it is to recycle. It's a complex business, and unfortunately, we're not going to save it, you know, during our conversation.
2: I read somewhere, I mean, sustainability, you know, for everyone, for you as personal. I think I read that, you know, you're in the business of traveling and you're going to be embarking on traveling. But, you know, traveling is a big, you know, user Oh. You know, makes a big carbon footprint. I mean, oh. do you look at that and say, "My contribution is maybe I should travel less or cut out?" Oh, yes, necessary? absolutely. I'm
3: very, very aware. As I think I said at the very beginning, I'm, I'm getting more and more guilty about about flying, yeah. and and yeah. and I just I don't understand why budget airlines are so cheap, and and the alternatives like rail, which are so much better for the planet tend to be so much more expensive. Um, uh, Our one little contribution uh, to the atmosphere is that since we had our car stolen about Fifteen years ago, we haven't replaced it.
2: Um, is that true? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, only
3: in London.
2: I don't <laughs> yes. think you could do that in Omaha, Nebraska. No, but.
3: I know. But I, know.
2: I, I get it. You know, because I lived in New York so long. You definitely, okay. you know, can get around. There's ways to get to the airport and back, and certainly to all the restaurants. Um, anything else that you know on sustainability? You know that we don't want to. Oh, leave I'm out sure of the there discussion? is.
3: I think it's just um, getting the message out about. Yeah heavy, breakable glass bottles which take up an awful lot of room and they're not, you know, being round. And then with the kind of neck, there's an awful lot of wasted space in any package with, with um, glass bottles in it. Um, right. Another thing that I've been campaigning against is, because I receive a heck of a lot of, of bottles, um, uh, styrofoam. Which, mm, you know, a lot of might, packaging. Uh, oh, you just can't recycle it. It goes to no. landfill. Um, no. And now I'm thrilled that there are so many cardboard, really secure ways of packaging wine bottles in cardboard. So there's no excuse for, for using Styrofoam anymore. Yeah, I've
2: seen some creative uh, iterations of that. You yeah. Know, and I'm starting to see way less. You know, I've seen three, four, five presentations of, you know a 12 and a 6 pack you know it wasn't just the standard thing which is you know very cool mm-hmm. um i want you had mentioned something earlier when you talked about the website and recurrent media um y- you know to me that looks like you made a further commitment to wines in the US um i recently had Elaine Shukam Brown on
3: Oh, good um, yes
2: and she had already been appointed um, you're a US editor. Great. So tell me a few things. I mean, I, I, Elaine has been around uh, you for years, so that mm-hmm. was logical. Um, why the focus on the US? Um, because you know, there are. What-
3: because there, there are so many of you, and you speak English.
2: <laughs> Wait, so, but I mean, let's get the business part out of the way for a second. It's definitely a growth market, right? So more yeah. coverage will, which you know you're deserving of. So you you make the right commitment but what's what's you know compelling here and you, you make the decision now you got to get up and you know what are you going to write about i mean there's always stories floating around your head or topics you know what's what's important right now about you
3: know well what... elaine's job is she's executive editor us and so she's writing a lot of material about particularly but not exclusively california wine in fact she's been right. writing about New York sparkling wine and um, she's got something on the go at the moment about hybrid grape varieties you know which are increasingly important in the Midwest and um, in the East well actually pretty much all over the US apart from California uh, and we have a really bright young woman Samantha Cole Johnson who's an Oregonian and right. I first came they were across- just up
2: there I think.
3: Uh, that's right. And,
2: Samantha and Elaine.
3: And, yeah. Together. And um, every summer we have a wine writing competition which on jansysrobinson.com, which is really, really popular. And we have a different theme each year. Sustainability was the theme two years ago. Old vines was the theme last year. And I think we're going to make regeneration the theme this year. Cool. And one year we had a theme which was write a wine lover's guide to a particular place. And the first time I came across Sam Cole Johnson, she uh, submitted a wine lover's guide to Portland because that was where she was living at the moment, Portland, Oregon. Um, But she's since then been filing great articles. She she interned in wineries in Oregon, Barossa in Australia and Napa. And so we had some fantastic reports from there. And now she's been appointed our Pacific Northwest Specialist. And oh, great. She's moved up from Napa back to Oregon. And um, we'll, we're, I'm really pleased with the stuff she's been filing from there. And she's, um, poor thing, embarked on the uh, Master of Wine course so oh, right. um and she's very interested in viticulture so we'll be getting a lot of material from that I'm sure. A lot of
2: work ahead there. Yeah. Um also I have to say that Elaine has a very keen eye and sense of important issues, social issues sure. in and around the wine world and Absolutely. she is really well, you know we're a very, terrific very voice keen on
3: that. Yeah. Yeah,
2: which you know I think is great. Um
3: and again a lot of these things are like awareness, you know when I was saying before, people just weren't aware that there was anything, any disadvantage to heavy bottles. And, you know, it's been... Right. Um, I wouldn't say that for the first my first decades in the wine world, I was conscious of how very white it was and how, what a narrow slice of humanity were sort of the major players in wine. And we really got to, to fight that. There are yeah, there are lots of chances. That's a show
2: that you, me, and Elaine could do. That would be a three-hour show on (laughs) that
3: point. Well, maybe that's come
2: to light through the last couple of years too. Maybe the pandemic put a spotlight on it too. Mm,
3: Well, I think probably George Floyd put a spotlight on it. Yeah, but um, no, it's well. Good point. The pandemic and and the the, George. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're sort of doing our best, but I think you should probably count me out because I'm I'm the wrong sort of person. We should get some of these And really I'm not sure bright. I can
2: carry the moderating, so I agree <laughs> with you. But it's something that, you know, continues to need, c- continues to have the need to, you know, have the attention. Um, I, how could I not sit here and talk to you and pick your brain um, about, you know, wine specifically? And I know what you do and what interests you is, tracking what's going on, but also tracking, you know, what's up and coming, Mm. um, you know, in wines and wine regions. And, you know, again, we can go on. But talk to me about a few things that I guess are, you know, exciting you right now or top of mind, particular Mm. wines, regions. You know, I think that people look towards you, (laughs) you Mm. know, for that kind of direction.
3: Well, we certainly, all of us, Love and an underdog. Um, I yes. would say we we kind of champion the up and coming. Um, we cer- we certainly cover the classics, and we you know endlessly cover each new vintage on Prima and things like that. But um, if ever a, a lesser spotted Fermentino from uh Peru, Hove's interview, then we're on it. Uh, Are um, they really
2: making Vermentino in Peru? No, I just made oh, that. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that to me, I mean, never heard that. Oh, go ahead. I mean, they
3: may But be, if but... they did, you'd
2: be right on it. Yes, that's right.
3: And Peru certainly has uh, a, a, a growing wine industry. It's not just Pisco there, although I love Pisco, I must say. Right. Um, so, uh, well, if ever for the last couple of years, I think, if people had said, you know, where should I be looking? Um, I do put a focus on both Greece and Portugal, because they have both got this wonderful array of indigenous grape varieties. And the sort of wines that they're making are not just copies of anywhere else, they are truly unique. And their winemaking prowess is fantastic. You know, they're, 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 they're not to be looked down on. They're making some seriously good wine. Um, I think I'm. I'm sad because I'm speaking to to you in the U.S. I would like to mention South Africa because I just don't think it's getting as much traction among American wine lovers as it deserves. The, I, I agree, and that me, goes good. to
2: retail and sommeliers. Mm. Y- you know, I I hope that escalates to your point.
3: Yeah. Um, now why
2: tell me you know the tell me about why those wines excite you.
3: They there's a lot of old vines there and there is a specific scheme to keep old vines in the ground and celebrate them. And in fact there's a seal over the top of the bottle that shows if the wine has been made from vines more than 35 years old and the um in theory and it's usually true that they they're making more concentrated flavor that way more interesting wine lots of old chenin blanc vines bush vines that uh, mm. do very well in the dry climate there which is which are producing wines i can't remember who i was discussing this with the other day but we agreed that actually south africa is now making better chenin blanc than the most of the producers in the loire valley where chenin blanc comes
2: from that's a bold statement <laughs>
3: yes yeah um i can't remember who I've, i'm going to uh, have to back me up on that uh, i have to try and remember um and and just there's a lot of i mean they have the most awful problems in south africa it's a terrible economy and a, a, yeah. an unsympathetic government sadly uh and terrible social problems but yeah. they are making very good wine and they need they need our money to to keep those vines in the ground and keep uh, wine farmers afloat, so I would strongly advise any wine interested listener of yours, which I hope they all are um to look look carefully at a good importer a good uh, you know in a good wine store you know if it's just a very ordinary well let's wine. let's
2: talk about that for a second um, y- you know the the way for people to access wine is to find a good retailer, is to communicate properly with a sommelier, or even to become familiar with an importer that may have the sensibilities of the type of wines that you like. I mean, don't you agree with that? You know, there's probably somebody in the U.S. who's importing more South African wines than others, you know. Yeah, it's like, really, yes. you know, well, so. if,
3: yeah, if people say to me, um, I like wine, but I don't know much about it and I want to learn more about it. I, what do you tell them? I tell them, I should tell them, you know, ooh, visit dot Robinson.com, get one of my books, okay. blah, blah. But actually, or I might say nowadays since February, sign up for my BBC Maestro online wine course. But I don't Let's English. Let's
2: talk about that. That's, that's another, you know, when we <laughs> talk about your movie. projects. Yeah. Did that start yet? I mean…
3: Have, yeah, yeah. Have they- it was launched in February. I think it launched okay, so that's in very the US recent. maybe um, earlier this month. It was a sort of, I think that's a kind of staged launch. But it should definitely be available. So um,
2: tell me about, you know, what you're doing Because, you know, your segue was good on that I mean, we <laughs> want people We want, and, and I didn't mean that facetiously I mean, we want pe- <laughs> Like you brought up Greek, Portuguese, and South African wines Those are incredible wines You know, you describe why they're so good And I always hate to say this But the quality to value is also terrific Fantastic You know, on yeah. all of those wines But we got to, you know, finding more out about wine What are they going to get when they go to the Maestro series?
3: Uh, they get... N- Nearly six hours of me wittering on about wine. And <laughs> wittering. Some of, it, some of it filmed in Burgundy in beautiful vineyards and Domaine du Jacques cellars. Not and the, it's split into, I think, 25 separate little lessons. And, you know, you just access what you want to watch, when you want to watch, and you go back to it and you know, as often as you want. Describe,
2: More, like, what are the lessons? Are they on grapes, wines, regions, yeah, Purdue? Yes. You know, what are some of the topics? Yes.
3: Um, they're the sort of what you would expect. Um, <laughs> uh, grapes and and how to taste, um, the perfect wine glass, which, of course, is the one I designed. Um, what uh, And it is backed by 40,000 words full of wine notes because, you know, there's so much detail in wine that you can't get it into even six hours of, of spiel. Um, so you're
2: saying the series is supported yeah, by, like you said, 40,000, there's additional stuff yeah, to yeah. enhance Yeah, which is sort of like a,
3: a, a small paperback, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, th- I think people, when they finish, they have a hunger and an appetite. Where do I get more? And, you know, it's waiting for them. So if people ju- – let's do the proper plug on that. If pe- <laughs> people should be piqued and interested, where do they go?
3: They um, go to BBC Maestro. Okay. M-A-E-S-T-R-O. Um, and I think and if you just Google BBC Maestro courses – Yeah, yeah.
2: People or BBC Maestro Jansis, you know, to definitely come up. Um, I'm curious when you do something like that, I want to talk to you about a couple things. You know, has there been a shift in the drinking age of the wine consumer? You know, is it getting younger? Is it millennials? Is it younger than millennials? Is that the guy that is going to these series or is it just me? Um, And then I want to talk about. You know, you and I have seen the evolution of the internet, and the internet has even evolved to social media on the internet. Um, wh- where Where's the wine consumer going? I mean, I know the big collector has money and he's educated, but I think a lot of these Greek, South African, and Portugal, Portuguese wines are going to appeal to a younger audience because they like stories, they make yeah. like, the regenerative winemaking. Yeah. I mean, is, is that... Is that happening? I mean, are you conscious of that and how I'm you very write and what you're?
3: Yeah, you know there are, there are definitely. Well, I know you are, influences.
2: that was an obnoxious question. <laughs> I know you're. kind. Con- it's more of you know how do you, you know how, how do you uh, approach it?
3: Well, I I try to make friends with the kind of good influencers. I think there are two sorts of influencers, aren't there? There's there's the the paid influencer who right. you know just says what they're paid to say. But um, there are there are also some great people who say what they genuinely think. And for younger w- wannabe wine writers, there aren't that many opportunities. I mean, here am I. I've been sitting in my perch at the Financial Times since 1990, and I enjoy it. And um, I think they're quite pleased with me. So I'm I'm not creating an opportunity for anybody. Perhaps I ought to step aside, but. I won't well, that's for the one next few weeks thing. anyway.
2: Don't, um, don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> it's one so, job.
3: <laughs> but, um, no, well, newspapers, have, you know, wine columns have been closing at a great rate. Yes. Um, yes. So there aren't that many opportunities for, for any young person who wants to get into wine writing. And I have to say that if I was starting out in my career as a wine writer now, I think I'd have far fewer opportunities than I did when I started in 1975, you know, then really, yeah, papers were wanting to have wine columns. Certainly in Britain, the population was falling in love with wine. I've been really right. lucky that my career has mirrored Britain's infatuation. Yeah, with that's wine. a good point. Yeah. But I think good, there are good. a lot of younger people who are turned off wine. And, and I'm not surprised given that you can only, by and large, buy it in a 75-centiliter container. So that's kind of six to eight drinks. And for heaven's sake, you need a special to get into To that point, to you're saying,
2: it. to that point about the 750-liter, milliliter, Um That that's not conducive to maybe a younger wine drinker. It's it's, too much, and it's like I can't drink or buy that much, or it's too expensive. even.
3: Too expensive,
2: yeah. I mean, packaging and marketing could be an important way to
3: absolutely. I I think I can. I think cans, you know, cans that just offer two smallish drinks are are a great way to go, and it's it's not a massive outlay. And um, more and more good wine is finding its way into cans too.
2: Yes, the, the definitely for sure. So um, I just want to make sure, I mean, when you look at the internet, which I think is great because that's where like a dot com lives on, people, live, people listen to podcasts. But social media, I mean, do we think it's good for wine? I mean, generally, all this blathering out there on social <laughs> media platforms, is that generally good for wine?
3: I don't know. I think, I think
2: that's the right answer. I don't know either.
3: <laughs> I, I I tend to be too busy doing what I do to spend much time. You know, I I, I have a Twitter account. I've got quite right a lot of followers to be sitting there I,
2: posting and lurking on other stuff. But, <laughs> but I I, I,
3: just, I just don't spend a heck of a lot of time. I, I admire that those who do it well, um, and I like I like the interaction. And so far. Twitter has been a but you have your community
2: from. with the website with your yeah you know you have all those platforms to talk to people so you're not mm-hmm. isolated from it you know which is a yeah. good thing but then again that's the internet um, there's a couple more topics I want to just cover quickly and then mm-hmm. we got to wrap up soon but we do a thing called the wine list where I ask all my guests the same five questions I've done it over 200 times. And if you've forgotten, I subjected you and Hugh to this when we were sitting up in Hachette a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get to that in a minute.
1: Did you know that over 70% of diners research a restaurant online before ordering from or going in person? Your digital front door is more important than ever. Let BentoBox design and build you a beautifully branded website. BentoBox websites provide sleek design and seamless content management, creating impactful first impressions and converting visitors into customers. And with built-in commerce and marketing tools like online ordering, gift cards, automated email, and more, you can also grow your revenue and keep your diners coming back. Join over 8,000 restaurants that leverage BentoBox to power their digital presence and deliver great hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. This episode is supported by HRN business member Food Karma Projects, dedicated to community building by creating unique food events that showcase the best local food, chefs, beer, and wine. Get fired up for the return of Brisket King NYC to taste the very best brisket pastrami, brisket tacos, sliders, and more. It all takes place on Wednesday, April 20th, from 6 to 9 p.m., outside at Pig Beach in Gowanus, Brooklyn. To purchase tickets or for more information about this meat lovers' fest, visit brisketking.com. Food Karma Project supports HRN's creative educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place.
2: I want You brought it up, and I just want to reiterate it. I mean, you've been at the Financial Times for over 32 years. You know, you're chugging out a beautiful weekly column. I'm just curious because we spent a lot of time talking about um, the website. Um, how do you juggle subject matter and, you know, how do you differentiate? Is it two different audiences in your mind or it's an opportunity to cover two different things? I mean, you don't want the same thing on both platforms. No, no, no. Time.
3: But they are quite complementary in that if I write in the FT about a certain subject, there's no way I can include the the ta- tasting notes that sort of would prove my point if you like right so I can publish a nice big rambling tasting article with masses of tasting notes, but then publish a a more succinct like thousand word piece uh, that that makes the point. That is demonstrated by the tasting notes, if you like. But when is it I'm hard to be succinct?
2: Is it hard to get it to the thousand words? Or you, I, I you
3: think know? I'm so used to it now. I do right. write naturally to about a thousand words, and I get a bit confused if ever anybody wants three thousand <laughs> <laughs> words. Um, no, it's my. It's become my natural length, I think. And when I'm choosing topics, I I, I suppose there's a certain. Uh, You know, you want to have something original. You don't just want to write what somebody else has already written. Right. Um, Try and tie it to something newsy, although uh, we have quite long lead time, so it can't be extremely newsy.
2: Right. There's a difference Uh, right there.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Whereas on the website, you know, you can... Sadly, one of the things that, that I do is write obituaries sort of very quickly. Uh, which is very sad, but, yeah. you know, I have got the memories and, and you know, have known yeah. an awful lot of people. Um, yeah. So when choosing the FT topics, I try to alternate, um, you know, between classic, maybe, you know, French classics and more outre, un, you know, mind-bending stuff. But the the website and the FT are very um similar in terms of their readership they're both global and they are both i think probably people who are reasonably interested in wine so i don't i don't, so. I, don't li- I, I hear from other wine writers in britain that their editors say never mention a wine that costs more than 10 pounds a bottle um, but I, <laughs> uh, the british are quite tight-fisted i'm afraid we are but uh, I think with the FT, I can, you know, mention quite right. a few wines that cost quite a bit more than that sometimes. I, I try and alternate it.
2: Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I see it that way. I mean, I see them both as, you know, great sources and I don't see them crossing over. I do see them as complementary um I'm excited, you know, to see what you're going to be writing about in the Financial Times. There's something I guess cuz I'm an older guy, you know, about opening a paper and seeing a story <laughs> than just hitting a website. Um lastly, and you brought it up, but I just want to follow up on it. You know, I recently interviewed Michael Mosbruger from Schloss Goldberg. Oh yes, at, lovely uh, wines, so Yeah. Up at Skernick. Uh, wine importers in New York, and, you know, I asked them to bring a bottle of wine, and the Skirnick people pulled out a few glasses, Mm -hmm. and they were the Jancis Robinson collection, Um, which I'm surprised, because they have a lot of stuff up there, Mm -hmm. and, you know, they had your glasses, and I thought they were terrific. So it's the Jancis Robinson collection. You collaborated with a famous designer, Richard Brendan,
3: Um, that's right you know
2: a lot of wine people want to make wine or you know do other things what compelled you to you know want to get into glassware
3: i didn't want to get into it at all i I mean richard this very bright young designer who'd had success designing other things wanted to design wine glasses and knew that he needed some expert advice and everyone was telling him he ought to come and see me i didn't know it but so he came to see me and Proposed this. And I said, nah, nah, I don't do hardware, you know, I, I, I just do words. Um, but he was very nice and very persistent. <laughs> and his team was very young, lively, not sort of corporate, good sense of humor. And I thought, well, actually, I've been tasting wine for that stage for, you know, more than 40 years. I have pretty strong views on wine glasses. So, okay, if you're going to fa- fall in with my ideas, Let's do it. And what I I think he was quite taken aback when I said I only want to have one glass. I don't. I was going to say
2: it's a minimalist approach. There's not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of skews there. There's a couple of glasses and a couple of decanters, right? (laughs)
3: That's right. But which of us has has unlimited storage space? And from the point of view of wine, I don't see any logic in serving white wine in a smaller glass than than red wine. And I'm thrilled to see that the champagne producers, those who make port and sherry that I really admire, they all want their wines to be served in a proper wine glass, not in a sort of tall, thin flute for champagne or a tiny little thimble for port. So honest I, I, I just have that one glass, quite a lot of them, and love them. And the nicest thing that happened to me was that my oldest friend's son, got her some for her birthday, and she's not a wine person at all. But right. she And she's also quite um, acerbic. She doesn't hand out compliments readily. But she, <laughs> she sent me this email saying, I can't believe how much better my cheap Pinot Noir tastes in your class. <laughs>
2: that's what it's supposed to do. Yeah. You know, mission accomplished. Exactly. <laughs> you, you know, um, so that's the Jancis Robinson um, – collection and they're pretty much available everywhere i mean online so certainly if you want to simplify your life take it from an expert um, have the right class not take up a lot of space and have a decanter um, you know look for that stuff all right we have to wrap up but i'm not going to let you leave without answering our wine list and i, and I make can't comparisons. remember anything
3: about it i <laughs> have them in front of me
2: so the first question and i think we may have answered it during the interview but the first question is what are you drinking now what's in the fridge what are you curious about you know what's on the table that you have to taste you know what are the few things right now that okay you, you know, well in this my window
3: desk, on my desk at the moment are the remains of a mug of cold tea no milk lab tea okay Uh, nearest to me on my covered tasting bench are four cans of South African wine from an outfit called the Copper Crew, which I must taste uh, tonight. Uh, They are flanking a tiny little sample bottle of, just hang on, um, a Claude de Vougo 2020 sent to me by Sotheby's. They're, supposed, they're trying to flog them in some fancy sale, and I suppose they want me to write that's a taste. That's a nice wine,
2: chances Sorry? That's a nice wine. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. But I rather like the juxtaposition of, of it with yeah, the, the cans of South it. Africa.
2: So you have yeah. a Burgundy, and you have, as we talked about, South African and in a can, right? All right, so those are two good ones. I'll take those. Um, this question is the goofiest question in the batch, and I know mm-hmm. you don't remember what you said, but I'm very curious how you answer it this time. Do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? Not something mm-hmm. you eat every night, every month, you know, but and not what you recommend as a good wine and food pairing, but something you like, a glass of wine in that food, that's just that ooh-ah situation.
3: Mm. I'm very liberal on food pairings. As I, I think once you've got some experience of eating food and tasting wine, you have a little computer in your head that you're not aware of that automatically matches them pretty well. Um, and I just I taste so many different wines that I'm finding it really difficult to answer your question. Um,
2: so you want to know what you said? Yes. A few years ago. Tell me. He, I will read it because I have it in front of you. Um, Jansa said she's not the world's biggest food pair. So <laughs> Didn't it's, I just it's, say it's, that? It's, it's similar now that, you know, <laughs> that's your sensibility. But I mean, listen, your husband is, you know, an elite food evaluator. Mm-hmm. Um, you're around food and wine, you know, you're always pairing, but the way you approach it, that's a fair answer. All right. Here's another one for you. Um, the third question. What, I mean,
3: uh, just to add to that. I think telling, giving the public the idea that they must get the right food with the right wine is a bit terrifying. And I'm always trying to encourage people into wine. And I don't so that's one of the reasons that I'm... Right, preparing. so don't box
2: it into. It has yeah. to be this. If you yeah. like a big, bold Napa cab with salmon or white or fish, it. fine. Yeah. right? But, but yeah. I think
3: that computer in your head will probably stop you doing it once you've right. had much wine.
2: Right. All right, so third question The question is your favorite wine restaurant and our bar. Now, I don't want that to be a tough question for you because if you pick something, that doesn't mean that's number one or your favorite. If you leave something out, you didn't do it on purpose. You know, if somebody comes up to you and says, I listened to the Great Nation and you didn't mention my place. That's not what this is about. I'm just curious Are there any places that stick out to you that the list is that impressive and the knowledge of the people that serve it and you walk in and the vibe is terrific? I mean, does anything stand out to you that way?
3: Well, obviously, our son's three restaurants and his wine bar are top of the tree. Let's Um, let's
2: name them, please.
3: uh, Portland, which has a Michelin star, Clipstone, the Quality Chop House, and then the wine barn next door is called Quality Wines. Is that um, fairly
2: new, Quality Wines, or Quality Wines is,
3: is relatively new? Yeah, it's the right. newest I of the three. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but and those think. are
2: all those they get it right as far as what but, they're serving, how they curate yes. it.
3: Yes, but I th- I have to also nominate um, somebody in London called Nigel platts Martin who has a, a little group of restaurants again, uh, the Glass House, La Trompette, and the Ledbury, and I may have missed one out. And he, he he makes sure that he has great staff and and really, really good wine.
2: That That's what the question is, you know, not one of the three, but all of the three, good people, good wine, good knowledge, good vibe, mm. all of that. All and right, those food. are all oh, great. And Shea
3: Bruce. Shea Bruce is the other one of his. Shea oh, okay. Bruce C-H-E-Z-E-Z. Right. Um and the and the food there is really stunning too. I can never I can never make up my mind what to choose.
2: So I forgot to tell everyone that you know I post the answers and, on our social media and our listeners love to, you know, get great intel from you. Good. All right. Fourth question. Favorite all-time wine. When I structured the question over five years ago for the podcast, I was really curious about, hey, Jancis, what's the rarest, most expensive wine you ever tasted? Now, that could be the answer, but the questions evolved more to what was that wine that was important to you, to your career, gateway, life-changing, you know, made you aware. Um, can you think of a wine or two?
3: Well, the, the the wine that opened up my eyes to how good wine could be was a Chambol Musigny Les Amoureuses 1959, which I tasted when I was a student at Oxford. And it was just so. There sublime. you go, early
2: in the game. Yeah. You know, very impressive wine. Um, can I tell you what else you said when we did Probably this? Probably Cheval years Blanc
3: 47. Bingo. <laughs> That's
2: it. One thing I know you probably are is consistent. So, Mm -hmm. um, but that Chambol music, you know, that, that is really, you know, the answer that that I was, was, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's what I was looking for. All right. Last question. And then we got to wrap up and I think you're is capable, if not more than anyone to answer this. So the question is recommend to me the best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks American, Um, Recommend a red and a white Um, You could recommend a category Like Muscadet is a great value White category, Portuguese reds, things like that I always say my kids are in their late 20s And they're beyond drinking crappy wine And spending, you know, 11, 12 bucks in a supermarket They can't show up at a party um, Or give a gift, you know, of a wine that's not thoughtful But they can't spend 40, 50 bucks either So give me your ideas you know, in so, that range, on a red and a white.
3: Yeah. Well, for white, let's go with uh, a South African Chenin Blanc. And if it says bush vine on it, that's a good good uh, indicator that it's... What does that mean, bush vine? Bush vine, it means it's not trellised. It's not up on wires. Oh, okay. You know, it's growing like a bush. And that probably means that the vines are quite old. Um, right. So I would nominate that category. And there's a very wide choice. Um, Ken Forrester was a, was a pioneer of taking Chenin Blanc seriously. So you could look out for Ken Forrester, okay. Chenin Blanc. Um, okay. then with the red, how about, this is great value, um, a Spanish Garnacha, which is the same grape as the Grenache of Chateauneuf-du-Pape in the Southern Rhone. And the Spaniards used used to be very snooty about Garnacha. They thought only Tempranillo grapes were any good. Oh, okay. But they were wrong <laughs> okay. and they've seen the error of their ways. And there are, again, lots of really old Garnacha vines growing in not very grand regions. So right. I and, and they go the kind of light, fresh, but sweet uh, and quite round, you know, not lots of tannin. So really easy to drink young. So, I like just say, popular. yeah, just look for Garnacha. Could be from Grados, G R E D O S, but there are lots of other places.
2: Yep. I mean, as a category, Garnacha yeah. from Spain is going to bring you a good wine at a good value. Yeah. Um, perfect job on that like i said i'm gonna post everything yeah. let me do a quick wrap up and i want to get some final info from you just backtracking a few things so if you have a question suggestion wine happening our event hit me up at sam at the that's sam at the subscribe to the Grape nation podcast on apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify or wherever you get your pods if you subscribe the second Jansis' podcast is dropped, it's waiting for you. So why wouldn't you do that? So please subscribe. Um, follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at SBenRuby. On Twitter, we're Ben Ruby. But you can always get to us by way of the hashtag, um, The Grape Nation, on both. As I mentioned, I will post Jancis' wine list answers on our social media, so you'll um, be able to see that. Um, and finally, Jansis. we, we covered some of this along the way, but just let's make sure we cover everything. If people want to get involved or find out more about your stuff, what are the best ways? com is really, like I said, that main artery, your website, right? That's
3: the one really. Yeah. And as I say, a lot of free material there, including, if you click on learn in the menu, all of that is free, and it's it's so much stuff.
2: Anything else that you want to – the Maestro series we talked about, we told people yeah. how to get to there. Um, the Glassware we talked about, anything you've been, else? You've
3: done a wonderful job. Thank you. <laughs> well, I,
2: my background is in broadcasting, sales, and marketing, so I kind oh, of get good. it. Um, all right, so I want to thank our guest, Jancis Robinson – Um, it's a delight to talk to you. I can sit here even though you wouldn't for hours talking to you. Um, thank you, you know, for doing this. Thank you for doing it again. Um, we wish you safe travels and a good time. And hopefully that's a little respite from, you know, what you've been doing. I want to thank our engineer, Matt, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. One final word, Jancis is offering to all the Grape Nation listeners 10% off a monthly annual or gold subscription for the first year to JancisRobinson.com. Use code GRAPE10. That's capital letters G-R-A-P-E and the number 10. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.